All right, guys, good morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Shane. Uh, I'm the administrator here at New City, uh, as well as the leader of North Park Gospel Community, most of whom are over there. Um, so I have the privilege this morning of teaching my first sermon, so I'm pretty nervous. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm glad you're happy to be here because it might get long. Just kidding. Um, so let me start out by praying. Um, actually, Zach and I are co-teaching today, so don't, that's why he's here. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not, not just moral support. <laughs> um, so let me start out by praying. Um, Father, would you open our ears this morning to hear your word to us? Let our hearts be open to what you might have to tell us. Jesus, we thank you that you've made us a people that can live every rhythm of life as worship to you in your presence. You are the good news we celebrate every day. Holy Spirit, show us this morning where in our lives we can better image you as we eat and drink and celebrate with one another and with your most precious ones, those lost sheep who don't yet know you. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in a series uh, called The Basics about the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, We've talked about the power and purpose of the gospel, um, our identities as family, servants, and missionaries. And now we're in a part of the series uh, where we're learning what it means to live in the everyday rhythms of life as gospel people. Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? There we go. Listen to story form. So the rhythm of listening to a dominant voice. Everybody listens to a dominant voice. And as Christians, we listen to God through prayer, um, through community, and through the Bible. Um, and then the rhythm of story form, that we're all continuously living our lives as part of a larger story uh, that's informing our own. Uh, and as Christians, we live intentionally as part of God's redemptive story. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the rhythms of eat and celebrate. Uh, I'll be talking about eat, and then Zach will talk and celebrate a little bit. Just a bit. quick survey. How many of you do that? <laughs> everybody. Right. Yeah, everybody does that. If you saw anyone not raising their hand, they need food. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm excited to help teach on um, how we eat as gospel people. Uh, I get to bring something that my life has been shaped by, which is food and cooking, uh, under the lens of go- the gospel and share what I've learned with you all. Uh, before I, I came to work for the church, uh, most of my working life I spent in kitchens and, and restaurants, dining rooms, bars. Um, my first job was in a, at a food truck, a uh, food truck before food trucks were cool, um, <laughs> at the Del Mar Fair or what, San Diego County Fair or whatever they're calling it now. Um, when, that was when I was 14. My last job before I came to work here, uh, work with the church, was uh, at the Hotel Dell. I worked at, as a bartender at a wine bar there, so... Uh, I have a culinary degree. I have some training towards becoming a sommelier. Uh, so this has a big part, been a big part of my life. Uh, it's something food is something that I really love and uh, have long had a deep love for. Uh, I'm going to give you this morning a short biblical theology of food. So what that means is I'm going to try to walk you through what the Bible says about uh, about food uh, in kind of a small thing. Um, I could probably preach like a year long series on it if I really wanted to, but that's scary, so I won't do that. Um, So later on, we'll talk about how we eat as gospel people. Right now, we're going to talk about why we eat. Uh, When I was in fourth grade, my teacher taught us uh, the Bible's creation story. She told us, God created Adam and Eve from the earth. He put them in a beautiful garden and told them to enjoy it and take care of it, but not to eat of the fruit of this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent came and tempted Eve to try that forbidden fruit, and she did. And Adam did too. They had disobeyed God, the God who had given them everything they could have ever dreamed of. 
Uh, This broke their relationship to God, and he kicked them out of the garden, and things were never the same. Sin came into the world and broke the relationship between the people and God. I remember after she finished the story, um, she, I, I asked a question. Um, why did God create us to eat? Uh, the teacher didn't understand my question. It was like I asked, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or something like that? It was very, she was like kind of baffled by my question and then just moved on to the next person uh, who had a raised hand. Um, and I was pretty bummed out. And I, I still am kind of bummed because I think it was a good question. Why do we eat? Um, our God made up the rules as he created. He could have created us not to eat. He could have created us to absorb our nourishment through the environment, uh, like some animal or some amoebas do, I guess. Um, I guess amoebas are animals, right? Um, somebody, some biology major's like, yeah, I'm funny. Um, Dr. Kenny. Yeah. Uh, so our God who spoke the, spoke the universe into existence wasn't obliged to create us with a need to eat. Um, he could have also made us like perpetual motion beings that like didn't even need any, any fuel. Um, but he, he gave us the need to eat. So why, why did he do that? Why, why do you guys, what are your ideas as to why he created us to eat? Just, yep. It's good to spend, to spend time, with, time with each other. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so we could uh, need and enjoy God's provision to us. Anybody else? To be connected to our surroundings, connected to the world? Yeah, connected to creation. There you go, yeah. God wanted us to be happy and and pleased with our, our, our lives and enjoy our experience. So those are all good answers. Um, and some of them I'm going to touch on. Do you realize that God created food before he created humans? Uh, let's open, if you guys have your Bibles. Um, if you don't, there's some Bibles in, in back there. Um, open your Bible to Genesis 1, to 1 11 to 12. And Zach's going to read that for us this morning. If you do have one of these Bibles in the back, or probably any other Bible, it's on page 1, this passage. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> there's like XX... One. Genesis 1, 11 and 12. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Do you guys see that? You see, I was saying that God created food before he created humans. He didn't just create plants, but but plants yielding seed and bearing fruit. Uh, Plants with a purpose as food. Um, God created the world as an endless feast. The Bible says that in the garden, there was every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Let me repeat that. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So what trees were there? You guys can answer. What's that? Go ahead. Bacon trees. No, no, there weren't bacon trees. (laughs) We'll we'll touch on that and bacon. That's heaven. We'll get to that. Yeah, every, tree, every every fruit is good. 
apple, apple trees. trees, pancake trees, <laughs> pineapple trees, <laughs> yeah, so coconut trees. There you go. Pomegranate, actually, pomegranate, I think, is uh, traditionally what they think that uh, the the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was, right? That, that's that's what they think. Okay. So it's an evil fruit. <laughs> an evil fruit. Um, yeah, there'd be every every kind uh, of of fruit tree that we can imagine. Um, it'd be like I, I was kind of thinking through this, like it'd be like vegan heaven, um, except. Yeah! <laughs> you got away for the second half of that sentence. <laughs> no, no, it'd be, it'd be vegan heaven. But for me, what I really would have wanted there would be like a blender, because then you could like have like a Jamba Juice every all the time. <laughs> um, that's just me, though. Uh, so God creates the world in the state of bounty, and the Bible tells us that God was was there with them. Every meal was eaten in God's presence. Mm. Every meal was perfect communion with God. Total well-being, security, peace, and abundance. Man and woman were in perfect relationship with God as they ate, recognizing his great provision and love for them. They enjoyed their meals together while, while praising God. So every meal was worship. That's why God made us to eat, so we could return again and again to his provision and goodness and glorify him. We eat to worship. But Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the peace between man and God, God and creation, man and nature, it was broken. Uh, after the fall, moving along a little bit in the story, God, God institutes feasts as regular times for his people to remember his provision and his goodness and grace toward them. These feasts were a partial restoration of the fellowship that Adam and Eve had as they ate freely in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Now, the ancient Hebrews had lots of festivals. They celebrated birthdays and weddings and people returning home and people visiting. Uh, they also had non-religious, or those were non-religious festivals. They also had religious feasts, uh, Sabbath feasts held weekly, uh, feasts of the new moon held monthly, and then the annual feasts um, of Pentecost, booths, booths, and weeks, and many more. Um, the Hebrews even had a yearly feast in which the people were to tie the tenth of their best produce, livestock, wine, and strong drink and throw a, part, a big party. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.26 says that this about that feast. You shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Now, that would be a pretty cool party. Imagine we all took a tenth of our income for next Christmas from, from this year and threw a, uh, this big party. That'd be, that'd be huge, right? We could probably hire some really skilled chefs. We could, you know, it'd be, it'd be fun. Bring Dr. Dre. Bring Dr. Dre. Like, <laughs> Dr. Dre could DJ. Yeah. We, we, don't, we could have Beats headphones on. Um, just imagine. That would be a massive party. <laughs> they did that every year. Yeah, every year. Now, all of the, the feasts of the Israelites, uh, though reminders of God's goodness and provision, were also reminders that the people's sins were not yet paid for. They reminded the people that God's peace with them was contingent on their obedience to his law. Most of the feasts required sacrificing animals, sometimes a lot of animals, a lot of spilled blood. They would make these bloody sacrifices again and again, week after week, month after month, and year after year for centuries. These feasts always, though, pointed to the Messiah who was to come and take away their sins completely and reestablish their perfect communion with God. The Jewish feast we would probably know best is the Passover feast. Passover is the most significant feast in the Jewish calendar. 
Uh, to a Jew, Passover is a reminder of how good Yahweh is, that he uh, brought, brought them out of Egypt, uh, rescued them from slavery to the Pharaoh uh, that they were in for centuries. Now, some of us took part in a Passover Seder last year. Who all was at the Passover Seder last year? Yeah, so quite a few of us. Um, now, now, Jews would celebrate Seder in the hope uh, that a Messiah would come soon. They would actually say, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, uh, in the hope that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem next year. Um, we celebrate, celebrated the Seder last year by looking forward to the day when the Messiah returns to rule and reign. Because we believe that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. Uh, Jesus, in fact, enjoyed a Passover meal as his last meal with his friends before he was crucified. During the meal, after he washed the disciples' feet, as John tells us, he institutes what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper. Now turn with me um, to Matthew 26, 26 to 29. This is when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Let me read that. Zach's, yeah, Zach's going to read that. This is on page 709 <laughs> in these Bibles from the back table. The first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and just a quick commentary on that, as, as we've celebrated the Seder, the Passover Seder, a few times, and in that celebration, there are four cups, four glasses of wine that you drink along the way that symbolize different things. And, and so for the significance of Jesus taking this cup, and that was to point forward, that was, like you said, the waiting on the Savior to come, it's the mode they had been in for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their parents and their parents' parents had all celebrated Passover the same way. And then Jesus takes a cup. And when he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is why we take communion each week. That's why we have these tables set up. That's why we'll take communion uh, later. Uh, in communion, we remind one another that like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we can now eat in God's presence fully um, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And the restoration of perfect communion with God, or shalom, uh, has begun. Our sins no longer stand in the way of us coming before our Father. Our sins before God are not contingent on our obedience, but on Christ's, which is counted as ours if we're in Him. As we take communion, we repent together, and sin loses its power over our hearts as we're made more like Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus wanted, wants, to, wants us to take communion regularly. He tells us that communion is not only about what God has done and is doing in our lives, but about what he will do one day when he returns to restore all things to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion points us to the fact that one day we will be in God's presence fully and completely. Sin no longer even a possibility for us. For right now we walk by faith, and then we'll walk by, that day we'll walk by sight. 
Communion is a meal that points us to the meal, a banquet that we'll eat together with our Lord. This meal is called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Let's turn to uh, Revelation 19, 6 to 9. Zach's going to read that one too. That one's on page 893. This very... is a little preamble. This is when he, when he talks about the great multitude. This is us. This is going to be the church, mm-hmm. us along with all the other saints. Yeah, 6 through 9. So this is Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Can you imagine that? Imagine with me for a second what that meal will be like. All right? We've just, jo- we've just uh, joined in perfect communion with God. Our perfect communion with God is restored. And we're going to celebrate a meal together. Now, I might remember be reading something in the, into the text. But I like to think that in a small way, sorry, two pages, um, at least, the angel, when he, when he said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, was saying, Now, this marriage supper, this is going to be insane. I'd have to imagine it will be, right? So angels trained unawares by Thomas Keller, uh, by, by David Chang, by Mario Batali, they're going to cook us an endless feast for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The best wine, better than anything from Napa or Bordeaux or Champagne, will be enjoyed fully without any sin or drunkenness. Can you imagine that? What do you guys think that will be, be like? Just some ideas. Let's dream together. What's that? Complete joy, yeah. Bacon trees. Bacon trees. <laughs> Next to pancake trees and then the maple syrup trees right there too. Wait a minute, those are real. <laughs> maple trees too. Yeah. yeah, they are real. No calories. No calories. We can eat as much as we want. Laughter. Laughter, yeah. I think that the taste will be enjoyed like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's, sommeliers do holy work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So think about this. If you trace what God allowed his people to eat through the Bible, the menu, it grows and grows. It starts out in the garden, and they can only eat plants. Uh, then with after Noah, God tells Noah that, that he can eat meat. And then in the New Covenant, uh, we're basically allowed to eat kind of whatever we want, um, we can eat bacon cheeseburgers and oysters and mussels and things that... that Sour Patch Kids. Sour Patch Kids. Yeah. I don't think... Well, anyway. Slim Jims. No, we can't eat Slim Jims. Yeah. <laughs> In heaven, I it's am. A, no, it's un, unholy, unholy food. They'll be perfectly healthy. So maybe in the restored heavens and earth, we'll eat foods that we've never tasted. Stuff that our present unglorified palates would just explode from eating. <laughs> 
But the best part of the wedding supper is that we will be united with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a restored and glorified creation, in endless peace and health and rest and celebration forever and ever. We should look forward to that day at every meal. We can practice this. When we taste uh, sweet fruit or juice, we should, we should use it as a reminder of God's goodness to us. Uh, if we bite into a, an apple that's rotten, hopefully accidentally, um, we, can, we can be reminded that, that Jesus came to take away our sin and that one day there will be no more rottenness, death, or decay. When our spouse or friend takes some of our french fries off of our plate, we should, we should give her more. <laughs> Even if we offered to buy her a plate of her own. And she said, no, she I said, no. I'm good. Yeah. I don't mean any. Because it reminds us of the gift of salvation that we don't deserve, but which God gives us freely with great joy. Mm-hmm. A French gourmand or French foodie uh, once said, it is not possible to understand a meal without bread. And I would agree. I, I really like bread. Um, but I would, go, I would do this Frenchman one better and say this. It is not possible to understand a meal without the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not possible to understand a meal without the gospel of Jesus Christ. The redeemed soul is the only one that can fully appreciate food because only the redeemed soul fully appreciates his creator. It is only in the light of the gospel that a meal is truly understood. It's with the tongue, the mouth, the palate of faith that we can taste every meal as a miracle. Let me close this part of today's teaching with a quote um, from a book I love. Uh, it's called The Supper of the Lamb. It's by Robert Farrar Capon. Uh, he recently passed away. He was an Episcopal priest and a good, really good home cook, I guess. He says... To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that's only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while, but we shall need forever its taste. I think he did all right for his first time. I was reminding Shane earlier, you know, often when you're working with someone, it's their first time in something, and maybe you've done it a couple times, and, you know, they'll, they'll practice or run something through like we did earlier this morning, and then you, you'll say, well, okay, here's this and that, right? And, and, we were at a Influx Cafe over in Golden Hill this morning, and Shane kind of walked through that with me. And I mean, I just want to be like, "Okay, let's pray. We're done." <laughs> like, um, and, and and all I had to say, I think, and this it wasn't just me trying. Like all I had to say was like, "Man, what a what a beautiful thing that God is doing in Shane's life, isn't it?" It's a, he's a, he's a man of integrity. That you, when he speaks, you want to listen. You want to know what God's doing in his life. Um, and all the more that he got the opportunity to share with us about something, like you said, that's, that's been such an integral part of his life. Yeah. And, and God has gifted him to the church as not only an administrator, but as an eater. 
for God's glory. And, and we praise God for that. So Amen. we actually, uh, this Tuesday, we're having an elder family dinner. And are you making chili? Or are you, is that, uh, I, I forgot you then. So to, yeah, you might not, we, yeah. Anyway, we get to have <laughs> Shane's chili soon. And um, I look forward to that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what a, what a wonderful thing. And not for just Shane's glory, but for God's glory that, <laughs> that we get to work together day in and day out and, and that he's getting this opportunity to share from his heart what God's doing. And Sorry. I will, we'll, focus, <laughs> we'll dive back in. I just wanted to, to share in that, ce- okay. in that celebration of God's grace in Shane's life. And that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit nice. is the, the everyday rhythm <laughs> of celebrating. That was completely unplanned. Um, so... As we, I think you all raise your hands, right? You all eat, hopefully, um, and um, we all celebrate, right? In every culture, even before the fall, but ever since, every culture, every person in every culture, every tribe and tongue and nation celebrates someone or something. And so we are created in Christ. And even before uh, Christ came and appeared as the Messiah, people are created and people are always worshiping or celebrating. They're directing their celebration towards someone or something as the best, as the most worthy of celebration or worship. And so as God's people transformed and being redeemed by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we gather together to celebrate God's extravagant blessings in Jesus. And that's everything we have, every breath we take, is a blessing of grace. All of it. And so the key question when it comes to this rhythm of celebrating is we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to ask of our culture, we've got to ask one another, to whom or to what is our celebration for? Even when we're celebrating one another and and things that we enjoy about one another, as we celebrate food, why? To, To whom are we celebrating? Or are we simply celebrating the creation instead of the Creator? See, that's what happened in the beginning. Back in the garden with Adam and Eve, God was celebrating His work. What did He say to celebrate His good work of creation? He said, it is good. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then when he created woman, he said, it is very good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Adam and Eve, though, were convinced by the serpent to instead celebrate themselves and their own work over God and his work. I can't lift over very much. Over God and his work. The, The angel, the most beautiful of all the angels, decided that he wanted to set his throne above God's stars. And God cast him to the earth and he tempted Adam and Eve to also celebrate themselves and to say, no, you can become more like God and God just doesn't want that for you. And they believe that lie. And because of that rebellion against God's celebration of himself as the best... Because of sin and idol- because of that sin and idolatry have entered into the, the world, and all of us are born into that world. All of us are prone to worship the creation, even ourselves, often, instead of the Creator, as the most worthy of celebration or of worship. And so we as disciples 
if we're seeking to celebrate as most important God's grace, if we truly understand and believe His grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will become the most celebratory people we know. We will have the best parties, even all of our our most low-key meals, like walking across the street to McDonald's or... Any little meal, any little nugget of food will be more celebratory, more, more filled with opportunity to celebrate God than people who are having massive parties that cost a lot of money because of God's grace. When we truly grasp God's grace for us, we will also want to learn more about these feasts and these parties that Shane was talking about. As we dig into the story of God, we'll see His attributes Not only pointed to, but practiced in these feasts and these celebrations and parties. And we'll see that we get to do that in our meals and our celebrations. Not only remember His grace, but be a display of His grace in the way that we do what we do by entering into this regular rhythm of celebrating God's blessings. And in, in your own life, in your own heart... Part of your ability to to walk by faith, to live out the gospel, to live a life that is in line with the gospel, part of your ability to do that is going to be dependent upon regular times of reflection on the gospel or on God's grace for you, on Jesus' work on the cross, on His resurrection. And so we need to regularly set and reset our affections on the things above, on God and on Christ, and what's now true of me, who I am in Christ because of what He has done. So Shane's going to read for us a story from Luke 7 where we see this play out. We see that when someone sees the gospel right before them, they are driven to celebrate. So this is on page 738. You guys have one of these Bibles. Luke seven thirty six is where I'll start. Now one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them in the, with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of a woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, she has wet my feet with her tears And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful story. I mean, just as an aside, I I hope and I pray that our celebrations are are that beautifully welcoming to the least among us, the least of our city, who can find no other place to celebrate life, no other place to be welcomed in. Jesus calls us to to have celebrations that that welcome in those who, who can't even find it in themselves to cross a threshold into a gathering like this because they say, you know, I've, I've heard people even say, like, I'd struck, be struck by lightning if I stepped into that gathering. Or I have too much shame, too much sin in my life to be able to be a part of that. I pray that our celebrations will be in pursuit of and welcoming to those who might consider themselves the, the scum of the earth, the least of the people. But if you, if you are a Christian and your heart, like you hear this, you're like, yeah, God's grace should really make me celebratory. It should. And yet, I'm not that celebratory. And even that becomes this cycle of shame, right? Like, I should be more celebratory, but I'm not, so I feel bad about it, so that makes me even lower, so I'm not sure what's going on. If, you, if your heart doesn't tend towards celebrating God's grace in all of life, if you want to be a more celebratory person, how many of you want to be a more celebratory person? I think all of us would love that. I know this may sound upside down, but part, a huge part of the answer is to get more in touch with just how little there is to celebrate in you yourself. I know that sounds upside down, but God's kingdom is often an upside down kingdom. The way up is down. The way to glory is death. The way to save your life is to lose it. It's an upside down kingdom. So the way to become more celebratory is to realize that the greatest and truest Reason to celebrate is the cross of Jesus Christ. So you, as you grow as a Christian and you, you begin to see more and more as the veil is pulled away from just how horrid and disgusting your sin is, that becomes a reason to celebrate because you see how Tremendous and beautiful and wonderful and powerful God's grace is to bridge the gap between the depth of your sinfulness and the beauty of His holiness. The perfection of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the perfection of the Lamb Himself. And so as you see how unworthy you are to enter in and to sit down at table and to have a party in in God's Presence, if as you see how little there is in you that deserves that, 
the more reason you have to celebrate that He has purchased your way in. Because God sees all of your sin. Like there will be sins when you, when you stand before God on Judgment Day that you, you forgot about, that you were blind to, that you never confessed, that you never repented of. God sees all of those and purchases your way to be with Him where no evil and no sin is allowed to be. That is reason to celebrate. And even the most dull and boring of days, that is reason to celebrate. And so we've got to ask ourselves, and we need to pursue in order to see that, in order to become more celebratory people, gospel celebration, a remembering that grace needs to become a part of our everyday lives, doesn't it? We need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. We need to go to one another. Even when you can say it to yourself, when it's not getting from here to here, from your head to your heart, from, from cognitively agreeing with it. Sorry, I don't use words that big usually. From mentally agreeing with it to feeling it work itself out in your actual face with a smile. When that's not happening, we can ask each other, to say even maybe the same words that we say to ourselves because we need to be rehearsing the gospel to ourselves and to one another. That's how God's made us to live interdependently on Him. So we need to be asking ourselves, how can that, how could it become part of the everyday rhythms of my life to celebrate grace? And we're going to spend these last few minutes just walking back and forth through these two rhythms of eating and celebrating in an interactive way in light of our identity in Christ. So in Christ is our, the primary way that the New Testament talks about our identity once we're Christians. We are in Christ. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, maybe it's just kind of, uh, you've heard it a lot or you've read the Bible a lot, but just let that sink in. Both the confidence and the humility that that can bring. That this, what we celebrate is only because... We are in Christ. So there's the humble, humbling side of it. But we have all the riches of heaven and earth to celebrate because we are in Christ. And in Christ we are a family because God is our Father. We are servants because Jesus, our servant King, brought us into His kingdom, paid our way into His kingdom. So we are His, we are His bondservants, His servants who show what His beautiful kingdom looks like. And we are missionaries filled with His Spirit, sent out like Jesus was sent out with the ministry and the message of reconciliation. So let's first talk about family. Yeah, so if God created us to eat so that we could glorify Him through it, uh, what does it look like to eat as a family? Yes, can answer I'll give you a hint. We start with eating together. Okay? <laughs> That's good. Anybody else have ideas? How, we, how can we make eating an act of worship? Turn off the TV. Turn off the TV, yeah. Although, you can watch the Super Bowl or something, maybe. <laughs> yep, pray before the meal. Pray during the meal. Think about if you're, if you're, as you eat, you know, you taste something that's really good. Praise God for it. He provided. I mean, it's not 
unspiritual to praise God for a really good steak or whatever vegans eat. (laughs) (laughs) That might be unspiritual, but... Yes. Mm-hmm. Natasha? Yeah. Yeah. That's spoken from experience there. <laughs> yeah, so we enjoy meals as a chance to savor God's grace and goodness together. Um, just like the ancient Israelites, we feast together as people made righteous by Christ's obedience. So how does a... How does a family, a gospel family, eat and, sorry, eat, and then how do we celebrate? What does celebration look like as family, specifically? Okay, we sing together. We tell stories, tell each other's stories, tell stories about life. We don't have to worry about being dignified when we celebrate. Okay, we don't have to worry about being dignified, right? When your family's... When you're truly kind of immersed into your identity as family, when you're, you know, when you're, you've really kind of sunk into the couch as a family member, you don't, you don't feel this need to, to perform, right? Like if you're hanging out with your sister, when she leaves, you're not like, oh man, I, I'm worn out from that necessarily. Uh, it's as, as much as we often, when we have one another over, we struggle with this, this other veneer that we feel a need to put on, but we don't need to do that if we're family, right? Especially in our celebrations. Yeah. Rejoicing with each other's reasons to rejoice. Like rejoicing with Shane getting to preach the first time. Rejoicing with with Nick and Patricia and Zach and Becca and others stepping out in faith. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Family puts on parties for one another, right? In, a, in one another's honor. Yeah. And we are forgiven, so we can forgive. We can forgive when the person burns the cake at our party, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. How, how do we eat as, as servants? Servants is the next identity in the, the order. How do we, how do we eat as, as servants? Yeah. With your mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, you allow people to eat your french fries, yeah. Serve yeah, serve someone else while they eat or, or cook cook for someone else, yeah. Mm. Or clean up. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh one one thing I thought I mean, we spend money and time. I mean we make we make a line item in our budget if you have a budget. Which hopefully you do. Um, you make a line item for, for hospitality. Um, we calendar times to get together mm-hmm. to eat. Um, I want to encourage you guys to practice this uh, in your gospel communities when you have a meal together. Don't let the host or cook do the dishes. Show them Christ's love by letting them enjoy a time and rest and interact and have fun. That's a good word. So how do servants... Enter into celebrations. How do servants live in the rhythm of celebration? How many of you watch Downton Abbey? 
right? <laughs> a few of you are like, more of you than raised your hands. Watch it. I know no, you I do. I didn't raise yeah, there you go. I love that. Right? There's the servants, right? So maybe we've gotten a more recent vivid picture of what a servant looks like. What does it look like to be a servant in, celebra- in the rhythm of celebration? You put yourself second. What does that look like in a celebration? Yeah, you're filled with joy to serve because you're celebrating the true servant, Jesus Christ, in your service. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, you don't, you're not drawing attention to yourself. I don't know if you noticed, but I did the dishes tonight, right? We're not doing that. <laughs> kind of a big deal. Yeah. Right, the servant's job is, and, and we talked about this. Kenny talked about our identity as servants and Jesus calling us to, to have a posture of, I'm just an unworthy servant. It is, it is grace that I even get to to live another day, let alone come and serve you and have an opportunity to do this. So how do we, this is a big one, how do we eat um, as missionaries? Yeah, maybe listen to people. Yep. Yeah, invite other people to eat with us. Or invite Absolutely. ourselves over like, like Jesus did to Zacchaeus, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming to your house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, our times that we eat um, are, are times to, to live in our identity as missionaries. Yeah. In San Diego, you go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A missionary to San Diego would soon learn that most meals are done out. Yeah. Uh, you, I don't know, there's more attention now. I like as a, if you're eating as a missionary, like you, you try to schedule like meals with other people mm-hmm. who don't believe or you put something into your budget for I wanna have, I wanna have this to like you know pay for someone's meal who doesn't believe or Yeah. Here's a uh, a really good point. Uh, Here's a question for you guys. If you guys know a little something about Spain. If you were a missionary to Spain, how would you eat dinner? Late at night. Late at night, right. So part of being a missionary is figuring out in your context, what are the rhythms of this this culture? I mean, if if your whole community eats dinner at 10 o'clock at night, um, you're going to have to eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night if you want to reach them. Uh, you know, you can't go to bed and that kind of thing. I don't know how they do it, actually. I always think about Europeans. I guess they have that, like, siesta kind of thing because I couldn't eat that late. But if I was on mission to Spain, I would, I guess. Yeah, we enter into the rhythms, and, and that's what we're talking about. These, And that's why that, that word is helpful in thinking through how we live as as people in Christ, this word rhythms, because... As we are missionaries, especially, that word becomes really powerful as we pay attention to the rhythms, as in when, you know, when the drumstick hits the drum, when the meals happen, when celebrations happen. Like, what are some celebrations that are happening right now or have happened recently in our culture? Valentine's Day, the Olympics, New Year's, Super Bowl, 
Chinese, Chinese New Year. New Year yeah. yeah. President's Day. I love everyone's like, President's Day, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Sunday is a day of celebration. Sunday fun day. Sunday fun day. So how, how do... Um, how do we eat as missionaries, or I mean, celebrate as missionaries to San Diego? What's that? We make penne vodka. Oh, okay, penne, like penne pasta. Okay, vodka sauce. See, you're a better missionary than I am. Yeah. How else? How do we celebrate as missionaries to San Diego? Okay. So in San Diego, what are, the, what are some of the ones that come to mind for your neighborhood, your context where God has put you on mission? What are some of the celebrations that, that are most meaningful? The Pride Parade in Hillcrest. Beer Week in the entire city. Where else? Music concerts. Farmers markets, yeah. Food truck nights. Art walks. Yeah. Those are wonderful opportunities, right? The world has set up lots of celebrations and said, come be missionaries to us. We don't, as Christians, have to invent new ones, do we? Especially in San Diego. I mean, there's always something going on. We can, we can hardly get people to the football games because there's plenty of other celebrations every day of the week. I mean, just going to the beach is a celebration of the sun and the sand and the salt water. Right? It's, it's a wonderful place. I mean, there, this is a, America's finest city set up just for missionaries to not have to plan their own parties. <laughs> Jesus, what was his first recorded miracle? Turning water into wine. What was the context? Where was he? At a wedding party at a celebration he brought the better wine right and so we as missionaries and as servants have an opportunity when we go even to one another's parties as family to like jesus bring whatever the equivalent of the better wine or the better beer or the better lasagna we get to bless as we'll talk more about that rhythm next week we get to bless and then also as um as servants and as missionaries, maybe we're not bringing the better wine, but maybe like Jesus at the Last Supper, we've brought the towel to serve, to wash feet, as it were, to wash dishes, to do whatever it is at the celebration that no one else wants to do. One thing I want to throw in here, um, I heard somebody else say this, but I, I think it's important. Uh, as missionaries... This is really convicting for me. If we're not living where, to where we're a little bit uncomfortable, where we have to make choices mm-hmm. that, that might be a little, you know, do, do, we, do we serve at the Pride Parade? That kind of thing. Um, if we're not making those kind of choices, we're probably not really living on mission. So that's just a, just a thought for you guys to... Yeah, I mean, just, just a big picture speaking, Jesus' life on this earth was not in pursuit. The end result was not comfort, right? It was death on a cross, and that is the pattern that we live in, followed by resurrection, but through the cross. The lead missionary that we're following was not successful by this world's standards, but was crucified. He suffered and died on our behalf. 
and we follow in his pattern, we lay down, we lose our lives for the sake of our city, for the sake of the people that live next door to us and that walk amongst us and that we work with. And that God loves so much that he sent his son to die. I was going to invite someone who is sick today to come up and share a story briefly uh, of just an example of living out really both of these rhythms as family, missionary, and servants all in one. Uh, Many of you know Sophia, and uh, she uh, is part of the Golden Hill-focused gospel community, and um, her grandmother passed away recently. And, and at the, the memorial service for her grandmother, she requested, and her gospel community did serve her family, many of whom do not know Christ. So they served, they displayed the gospel, while also Vince was able to proclaim the gospel at that service. They were able to serve in displaying Christ-likeness by basically catering the entire meal, kind of a potluck, but they catered the meal for Sophia's family as, as in a way to bring the wetter, better wine, bring maybe the only wine, to, to bring the food and to bless her family as servants and as missionaries. They laid aside their agendas for that day, for that food, for that money, and for that time in order to truly be a blessing to their family member's family. And that is a wonderful example that we can keep in mind as we consider these rhythms of eating and celebrating, that we can lay down, and prior, we can lay down our time and our agenda for the sake of others in order to be a, a wonderful blessing. And I know that her family was tremendously grateful. And that day got to see a glimpse of what gospel-transformed people do in these rhythms of eating and celebrating. Now Jesus, as I said, did his first miracle at a wedding and he turned water into wine. And as Shane talked about, he, he didn't stop just at get, giving really good wine at a wedding. He gave us the best bread and the best wine possible. Jesus gave us his body and his blood to make us right with God and to forgive us of our sins. Living out these rhythms is not a way to earn a new and better status before God, but it's because Jesus gave us His body and His blood as the better body, as the better bread and the better wine. That we get to eat for God's glory. That we get to celebrate for God's glory. And so we get to celebrate His abundant grace, and we're going to do that now. And as we eat and as we drink, as we take this bread and this juice, we get to look forward to that feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, that party where we will see Him perfectly as He is and celebrate Him in new and wonderful ways.